Why would you want to bring your friends to meet Jesus? I'm assuming you want to. Why would you want to bring your friends to meet Jesus at something like an Easter Q&A dinner? Why would our friends have any interest in Jesus? Because, and you may have noticed, we live in a world that so easily defriends, unloves, rages, and pretends to do friendship, but keeps people at an arm's length. And we have no category anymore for sacrifice and things like fellowship. Things like forgiveness. And into that world, the message of the gospel is this, for you and for your friends, is that Jesus won't give you up. Jesus won't give you up. Uh, People need to meet someone like that. People need to meet, really, the grace of God in Jesus Christ. We all need grace. Our world is short on grace. Uh, throughout medieval church history, uh, you may know this, but you can, you can read church history and there's books to borrow. We have a church library here you can borrow on church history. But throughout medieval church history, before the Reformation, the grace of God was thought of as a substance. And there are many who suffer from this wrong thinking today. But the Bible shows us the grace of God is not a substance that you can have kind of more or less of incrementally and you need to top up as if you need a top up of your milkshake or your coffee at um, the Beechworth Bakery. Now, grace is not a substance. Instead, it is a category-busting, counterculturally. It's an attitude. Grace is an attitude. And the word grace means undeserved favour. Grace is a way of relating to people. And when we see the word grace in the Bible between us and God, we see it's God's way of relating to us. We see ultimately grace is what John's gospel shows us. John's gospel shows us is that grace is a person. And we meet him when we meet the word become flesh, Jesus Christ. Today in John 18, we meet the grace of God. And we actually see in John 18 that he has an attitude towards us. The way he relates to you and to me, to everyone else, even people who betray him or deny him, even people that bring accusations, he relates in a gracious way. Jesus says, the hour has come. In John's Gospel, the hour has come. He's spoken to his disciples for the last five chapters has been one ongoing conversation. By and large, a monologue from Jesus. A bit of Q&A with the disciples. But Jesus has been speaking about his hour coming and now he says it is here. As we saw last week. The hour has come. And what does he enter? As he crosses the book of Brook of Kidron, he enters an orchard of fruit trees, an olive grove, the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, what a moment we have here in the history of the world. When you think about what's happening here, what a moment we have here in the history of the world. Think about this. Just as there was a first man who was in a garden where humanity sinned, where that first man and woman were expelled from a garden, now this perfect man enters this garden 
to take the blame and shame and all our accusations of sin, to be betrayed into the hands of sinful men, to be executed on a cut-down tree. And what we see in the Garden of Gethsemane is a reversal of what happens in the Garden of Eden. For Jesus doesn't do an Adam when the accusations come. He doesn't do an Adam and blame others. It was these disciples you put here with me. Instead, he gives himself up and he's the innocent one. Jesus gives himself up. Look at this. On the night he's betrayed, he enters the garden and his betrayer, by the way, knows where to find him. And so we see Judas who comes with a small army to take Jesus down. Some translations, it's a, it's a cohort, the way to translate that word, original word. It could be up to three, four hundred men. We know they escorted the Apostle Paul with four hundred plus men. So this is not just Judas and three guys. This is a small army come for Jesus. Of course, Jesus knew what happened to him. Verse, verse 4, chapter 18, verse 4. Then Jesus, knowing all what happened to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And as we meet the grace of God in John's Gospel, we meet and get to know him. And as Jesus asked the question, it's fascinating, he knows what's going on. He knows whom they seek. I mean, it wasn't obvious by the fact that there's a small army and they're making a beeline for Jesus and Judas is with them. But Jesus knows more than that because Jesus is totally sovereign over every step they make and totally willing to give himself up. See, that's, that's actually power, isn't it? In our world that scrambles for power, even sometimes in our churches, we scramble for importance and power. See so what real power is? He's having all the power in the universe and then with that power, giving yourself up to captivity. That's power. Verse 5. They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas who betrayed him was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Jesus speaks to reveal who he is. But notice his friends, and we've seen this in John's Gospel before. Notice this. He's not just saying, oh yes, I've got my name tag. Um, I'm in Jesus of Nazareth. He's not just saying, I'm Jesus of Nazareth. He's not just saying, I am the Christ. I'm the Lord. He's using a particular expression that has been used since the Old Testament, since that bush that was burning, that was not consumed. God spoke at that moment to Moses. And what did God say? I am. And what does Jesus say? He uses the revealing name of God. He says, I am. God who is. Jesus, he's there. And they drew back and fell to the ground. Because when they meet Jesus, they are so outmatched. They're outmatched in every way. We think of Jesus as, well, this lone guy, he was nice. But do we think of him as powerful? They are outmatched in every way and he holds no weapon in his hand. And what it revealed to us in this moment as we watch on is Judas isn't just betraying a friend. The troops are not just arresting a pacifist, troublemaking religious guru. They're not just arresting a prophet. They are face to face with God himself. 
Recently, friends, you'll recall, because we mentioned it in a sermon recently, but you can Google it, YouTube it later, if it's still there. But recently, you'll recall, many people in our society were offended by a joke that was made on the Project TV. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I see some head shakes. Go and look it up later. It was a joke made about Jesus. So a transgender person made a joke about Jesus. And... um. You'll recall, if you didn't, I'll tell you what happened next. You may have seen this, but it was interesting that of all the offence that was taken, it wasn't just Christians. Some Christians were offended. And the joke was distasteful, but we saw in that sermon last time, the point is, Jesus dies on a cross. That's a joke, right? Like, Jesus dies at the hands of mockery. It's not new to Christianity, friends. It's actually the centre of what we understand and hold dear. But my point today is this. There were many people who were offended. Some of them I noticed because I'm on Twitter for reasons I don't understand, but I'm there. And I just noticed the stream of all the, all the articles and the way it's placed and the stream. And just, just anecdotally, by majority, people who were offended were either right-wing folks, right? just not Christians, evidently not Christians, the language and the tone, not Christian, not confessing Christians. But also what I noticed was this, there were a lot, a lot of Muslims offended. Of course, Wally Ali was at the centre of it, whether it was a smirk or not, who can tell? He apologised, they apologised later, and I think they're apologising mainly to Muslims. Now, why were Muslims offended by a joke about Jesus? Because Islam holds Jesus as one of the prophets. Of course, Islam is all about the fallen ultimate prophet, who's Muhammad, but they, they hold Jesus as special Now, friends, you may not know this, but maybe you do, and you'll notice there's some construction happening on the corner down there, because we are the closest church to the new one and only mosque in Bendigo. It's three doors down. We see that as a huge gospel opportunity for us. We are three doors down. They're going to have a cafe. We've already got a cafe. We'll come and talk about Jesus. Our Muslim friends love talking about Jesus because we want to say, We love our neighbour and we love them by telling them the truth about God, the truth that they need to know. But here's what also they need to see and know. What I noticed from that whole taking offence about Jesus, you know, um, a a distasteful joke about Jesus the prophet, what I noticed this is, what our Muslim friends need to see most of all is that we actually don't need a prophet. We need a saviour. And we need a saviour who's willing to go to mockery and a cross for people who would mock him to even save them. We don't need a prophet, friends. We need a saviour. We need God himself to come. When Judas and that cohort meet Jesus, they're not meeting a prophet. They are meeting God in flesh and they are outmatched. They're meeting the one whom they actually need. Jesus says in verse 8, I'm the one you want. Verse 8, Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. Jesus gives himself up here. Verse 9, this was to fulfill the word that the prophet had spoken of those whom you gave me, I've lost not one. You see this? This is to answer and fulfill Jesus' prophetic word, even in John 17. We already saw this in his prayer. Verse 12, John 17, verse 12. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me, and I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, 
that the scripture might be fulfilled. Who's the son of destruction? It's Judas. But Jesus is saying in his prayer, Jesus is showing here the fulfillment is this. He will not lose one of them. Not even in this moment. Jesus gives himself up here and he does this because he won't give up anyone else. See this? Jesus is in command of the situation and everything else is going to his plan. He's even achieving his objectives, securing the safety of his disciples. The hour has come. Jesus has come to die and so to death he now goes. And in these last moments of this arrest, it's Peter who struggles to understand that everything is going according to plan. Peter is here for us because we often, I often struggle to understand that everything is going according to God's plan. So what does Peter do? Well, famously, he pulls out his sword. Now, I think for Peter, cutting off the servant's, the high priest's servant's ear was probably a swing and a miss. So I, I don't think it was his intended target. I don't know much about swordmanship. I've not done any fencing. But I'm, I'm, I'm getting the picture of if you're thinking of taking down your enemy, if you're a warrior and you are a trained warrior, you're a trained sword handler, the ear, it's not going to really take the person down. I mean, they might go, ah, I'm not going to look good for wedding photos. But it's not going to really affect their ability to fight. So I think it's a swing and a miss here. It's a, He just gets out and in the moment just goes, oh, I don't know what to do, and he just hits the ear and it goes off. Because Luke tells us, Dr. Luke in Luke's Gospel says that Jesus is the one that heals the ear of Malchus. But notice this. Jesus also here tells him to put his sword away. John 18 verse 11. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? He's not telling Peter, notice, Peter, you're not very good at this. Peter, stick to your day job, fishing, and I'm teaching you how to be a preacher. No, he's saying, the sword does not belong here. Peter is central to things often in the gospel, isn't he? He's, he's always doing something, but kind of going, oh no, no, don't, this is awkward, this is embarrassing. But he's central to things because he's a great example for all of us who can identify with Peter. I can identify with Peter. Have you ever found yourself thinking that you were doing the right thing and what you thought was the right way only to find out it wasn't Jesus' way? I have. Have you ever found that? Yep. Friends, you're welcome here. We're a whole church of people that know what that's like. In Matthew's Gospel, Jesus says to Peter, he says these words, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Friends, this is important for us to get, particularly in an environment, in a nation, in the state of Victoria, where it's getting a little bit hot, isn't it? The climate has changed against Christianity. It's getting a little bit warm. We need to hear this and reflect upon this. Jesus says this, if our response, if Christianity is by the sword, you're actually mistaken. For those who live by the sword will die by the sword. And why is it Peter's going by the sword? Why do we take things into our own hands? It's not a sword, is it? But it's something else. We, we try and find something else to address the problems. 
I think, friends, we do what Peter does. We lose our confidence in the power of Christ. We lose our confidence in the power of the gospel. That's where God's power is, Romans 1. We start to take things in our own hands and do our own methods and our own means. And we're not displaying but also believing the power of the gospel in our hearts. I know the temptation. I've done it. I've been there. I need to hear Jesus' words. So when Christianity becomes take up arms, that's because people have stopped taking up our Bibles. When Christianity says we're going to act now by doing a bunch of things and maybe some of them are good things to do, I write to politicians too, that's fine. But if that's all we do and we don't pray, we actually show we're not relying upon God in everything in our prayer or our prayerlessness. I think that we can be the ones that action and fix things. It goes deeper than that too, doesn't it? It's, it's you live by it. If you live by the sword, you die by the sword. It's lots of things, isn't it? If you live by thinking, Christianity will be more compelling if we just had more famous people. Or if we had better preachers. It's good to have good preachers, but as in more relevant to the world kind of preaching. Friends, if you live by platforms and celebrity personalities, you will die by platforms and celebrity personalities. If you live by worldly success, you will die by worldly success. If you live by confidence in any other power but the power of Christ, even in our weakness, then you actually don't have life in his name. Friends, to quote... No, I won't quote. You'll understand if you know what I'm talking about. This is not the way. This is not the way. What is the way? Jesus says in Matthew 26, verse 53, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will send at once to me 12, 12, 12 legions of angels? 12 legions. Back to John. Back to the scene. What does Jesus say in John? Put your sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? This is the way. This is the way of the cross. This is the way of Christ. This is the way of Christianity. It is cruciform. For those who live in Christ, dying to self, have life in his name. So they arrest and bind Jesus and take him to the high priest And as the political high priest meets the real high priest, Jesus, this political high priest who's only there because he wants money and power and and platform, the political high priest meets the real high priest and on display we see the public Christ and public Christianity. We see Jesus taken into custody for questioning. And in the courtyard there's Peter. And I love how John writes, and there's another disciple. Uh, John is famous for this in his gospel. At times he'll write about this other disciple or the disciple that Jesus loved or the disciple that Jesus was leaning against. And who's he talking about? He's doing that whole thing where he doesn't want to say him. It's him, it's John. So there is in the courtyard Peter and there's John because John has access, he knows the high priest and whatnot. And they're there in the courtyard. We know the way that John writes his biography of Jesus, that John was up close and personal. He's right there. So here we have, in this scene, there's a quick back and forth of change of scenes, 
In this back and forth of change of scenes you see on the page in your Bible there, there's John and Peter in the courtyard by the fire and there's Jesus who is in religious court. Verse 19, and then the high priest. The high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching and Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in the synagogues and the temple where all the Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. Can you imagine that? Going to church, hearing a sermon or a series of sermons over three years from Jesus. And then someone says, what did Jesus say in those sermons? We'd be ready, wouldn't we? Those sermons changed our lives as we heard God's word preached into our minds, renewing our minds and moving our hearts. And we'd say, let me tell you how Jesus changed my life. Jesus was a public Christ. He was the public one. You could ask anyone. Verse 22, when he said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand. Is that how you answer the high priest? What a sham line of interrogation. Playing pretend as a concern for God's glory when it's really all about vainglory, self-seeking, power-hungry consumption of man is what's going on here where the priest actually is against God most high. Here we have the only perfect man who's ever lived, lived perfectly publicly the whole time, being questioned about his disciples, his teaching. At any point, the high priest could have got two or three witnesses. At any point. Because at every point, Jesus has given every opportunity. Jesus says in verse 20, I have spoken openly to the world. Jesus has always been the public Christ and Christianity, friends, is a public movement. Here's what we need to see. Here's what the world needs to see. The world needs to examine ourselves. See, in a world that is open to the same level of scrutiny with everything else, aren't we? We have social media and the news and we, we want to scrutinise and have public transparency with everything. Will we let there be more public transparency for Christ? Because he's not holding it back. We're not holding it back. Yes, there have been parts and people of Christianity who have not been public. In fact, have done things that are wrong in private. Who have not sought for transparency. But of all the people in the world that want transparency, it's us. We want to be crystal clear who we are and what we're like and who Jesus is. We want to speak openly. Christianity is personal but not private. When I was growing up, I noticed in the little country church I grew up in, we had this whole culture where, well, Christianity is my personal thing. It's my private thing. No, 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 Christianity is always personal, but it's never private. It's always about God saving not a person, just you, for you to have your own individual Christianity, but saving a people. It is personal and it is public. It is gathered And it's gathered in the world because the world needs us to do so. The reason for things like Q&A next Sunday is to invite others to look into the public life of Jesus. Nothing done in a secret. Ask any question. Next Sunday evening, 5pm, Botanical Hotel, you watch what happens. You can even bring your friends. Tell them to bring the hard questions. All three elders will be there, Lord willing. The panel will be there. We want to see Christ known publicly. Because this is not about your own personal Jesus. It's about Jesus being known by everyone. 
Are you one of his disciples? In the closing moments of this episode, we see Peter. There's Peter in the courtyard. And we see Peter, and what is he doing in the courtyard? He's warming himself by the fire. And so you can see Peter. You can actually look into the face of the one who is so like us. Because as he's looking into the flames, warming himself by the fire, he's not wanting to make eye contact with anyone. He's not wanting anyone to recognise him. He just wants to lay low. And so he sits there, warming, looking into that fire. He doesn't want attention. He's wanted attention in the past, but not now. For now, whilst Jesus is given up for dead, he is there, but not really there. Verse 17. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of his this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. Then down to verse 25. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, you are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden? With him. Peter again denied it, and at once at once, a rooster crowed. Three times he denies he's a disciple of Jesus. Even the relative of the man whose ear had been cut off, healed by Jesus, as we see in Luke's account, even that relative was there in the garden and he recognises Peter. And Peter, by the way, is more than one of those, he's not answering by saying, you know what, yeah, I have one of those faces that's easily recognisable, like I look like people, maybe I'm a doppelganger for the guy you're talking about. Yeah. He's not saying that, he's not kind of going, oh, I'm not really sure, oh, maybe, yeah, maybe he was there. He's not doing that, he's an absolute, public, total denial. And notice, he denies Jesus with the same language that Jesus reveals himself to people as. But Jesus says, I am, what does Peter say? I am not. Not, not, not. Of course, Peter will become a forgiven, restored man. We see this, we'll see this on Risen Sunday. Three times Peter denies Jesus and three times Jesus says to Peter, do you love me? Peter gets the wonderful opportunity to repent and be forgiven and restored. He then ends up leading the church. You see through the book of Acts, the first part of the book of Acts, Peter is often leading the church. He's there when they decide to replace Judas with Matthias. He's leading that conversation, that meeting of the elders. He's there when they preach that first sermon 3,000 are saved. He is there when Ananias and Sapphira, Sapphira um, get into trouble really for lying and deceiving. But he's also there when he needs to be corrected by Paul on where our righteousness comes from. Peter is a man, a person like you and I. And his failure is writ large here the world to see. Why? Because he's like you and me. Because this is what the world needs to see. The difference that Jesus makes to life, the difference that he makes to the disciples then and now, is that when you and I, like Peter, are at our most vulnerable, when even perhaps you've given up 
on Jesus. Perhaps you've had a moment of weakness. You and I need to see that Jesus won't give up on you. Are you one of his disciples? Why would you want to bring your friends to meet Jesus? Because Jesus won't give up on them. Jesus never gave up on you. Your friends need to see this too. Peter got to tell with public honesty for the rest of his life. He got to say to people, do you know what? When Jesus prayed, he wouldn't lose one of them. That was about me. That was about me. And I love how the Apostle John who writes this says he was there in the courtyard by saying, well, it was me. It wasn't my way name me, but I was there. Right? And you can imagine, John is there warming himself by the fire too. There's Peter and there is John. And John, as Peter is questioned, in his own fear perhaps, looks into Peter's face. And he looks into Peter's face as Peter fails publicly and realises his failing. And John remembers the emotion of the moment and he writes it into his gospel for you and I to read. And this moment is then re-read by all who are failures who now get to come to Jesus and find sins forgiven by God himself because Jesus drinks the cup of wrath so you get to drink from his well of grace. How deep is a cup? You can try it out over church lunch today. Please do stay for church lunch. Church lunch, we've got cups. I think the deepest we've got is probably that big. We reserve it for milkshakes and kids. But the cup of God's wrath, the Old Testament scriptures speak about that cup being full. How deep is a well? Well, some wells are hard to fathom, the depths. The well of God's grace is deeper. Now, in Peter's confusion and collapse, Jesus speaks into the fog of failure for him and for us. For Jesus, and this is our key verse, verse 11, it was Jesus who said to Peter in the face of his kind of losing it with the sword moment that Peter needed to remember in the courtyard, that Peter needed to remember for the rest of his life, verse 11, shall Jesus drink the cup the Father has given him? Yes. Jesus was to drink this cup, the cup referring to God's wrath. We read this in our cross-reference reading in Psalm 75. Hear a description of the cup of God's wrath. Psalm 75 verse 7, But it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. From the hand of the Lord there is a cup, the foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. The cup of God's wrath, his anger is against sin. And that sin has corrupted the world. It kills life in people, leading to death and hell. God is rightly angry with sin. See, we get angry, don't we? We get angry with people. We get frustrated with people. But often our anger is over the top. It's unmeasured and it's unwarranted. It's motive. It's bent out of shape by sin. But God's anger is right, never over the top, never underwhelming, 
always exact and right, and it arises out of his love. His love for what is right. See, we get anger, and so what do we do in our anger? We gossip about people, we talk about people, we slander people. God never does that in his anger. Instead, he brings exact justice. God is rightly angry with sin, and not just because he's irritable or short-tempered, but because he's patiently enduring evil of the world, looking with holy love at all the wrong in the world, including your wrong and my wrong. All of us deserve God's wrath, because all of us are sinners. Because we've all not loved God, we've not loved others, and God's wrath arises out of his love for justice, for righteousness. We all deserve wrath. We all deserve more than just to fall down in the garden. We deserve to meet the one who is I am and receive judgment for sin. We deserve hell, friends. I deserve it. Yet. Gospel. Good news. The Father sends the Son, who is the I am, become a man. And he says to Peter, this is part of the plan. For Peter... He'll swipe with a sword in one moment, deny him with words in the next moment. Jesus comes to drink the cup of God's wrath against Peter. For us, as we turn to the table with communion in the Lord's Supper, we remember as a gathered church, we taste and see that Jesus came to drink the cup of God's wrath against your sin. That on the cross, Jesus will drink the cup of the wrath of God that he has given him, the Father has given him. And notice how he drinks it on the cross. He drinks it down to the dregs and calls out, it's finished. Jesus isn't just giving himself into the hands of authorities so the disciples go free that night. He's giving himself up for our eternal freedom and salvation. Jesus won't give you up. And all you need to do is receive the grace of God by believing in Jesus. Let's pray that for all of us, for our friends, our family, that we all have life in his name. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, as we turn to the table, as we sing songs of the saved, We have thankful hearts because Jesus is the man of sorrows, Lamb of God, by his own betrayed. We see at the cross the sin of man and wrath of God has been on Jesus laid and we come to Christ to receive the grace of God by faith in Jesus. So now as we sing and turn to the supper, we pray that all of us here would believe and have life in his name and our region would be reached for Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.